things just escalated really far. It seemed like there was no hope. I felt like my whole world was going to cave in. Now you're different all of a sudden. It's probably my ultimate low. To give me a second chance. I basically lost my brother for 10 years. I didn't feel like God would forgive me for that. I didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. I realized just the magnitude of Justin's problem um, probably the night of our wedding. Um, I think that everyone expects to party the night of their wedding, but that's the point I realized that he was taking it way too far. Um, but it wasn't until our daughter's diagnosis that I realized he was using alcohol and his addiction to alcohol to escape from our family. Um, some of the worst nights of my life are nights that he'll never remember because he was under the influence. I felt disconnected from him, and I felt like I was unworthy of him because he was choosing um, alcohol over me, over our family, and I cared most about our family, and I felt like he didn't care at all. You know, our daughter was getting older and was asking questions, where is daddy, why isn't daddy home tonight? Why did he leave us? I decided to leave on a night that Justin um, said he was leaving for work and when he left he never came home it wasn't the first time that something like that had happened there had been plenty of nights where we argued and plenty of mornings where I begged and pleaded and cried and threatened um, and he would always say he was going to change but the night that he left me with a two-week-old and a four-year-old I knew that there was nothing I could do anymore. I couldn't beg, I couldn't plead. It just wasn't gonna be enough. So I went to a friend's and I remember being up for like a 2 a.m. feeding. I remember hearing a small nudge or feeling a small nudge saying, you have to go back, you have to go back. And I was angry for hearing that because staying gone and leaving Justin felt a hundred times easier than going back home. So I remember praying. I said, I can't do this without you. I can't go back and deal with this without you. I have to put all of my faith and all of my trust in you um, because without that, we aren't going to make it. And I just remember clinging to that and thinking um, my hope is in God and not in Justin. I went home and I told Justin, I was like, I don't know if I can do this but I'm going to try. And I listed out some things that he had to do in order for us to stay. Um, so we started those things, and it was a very slow journey. He started coming to church with me, um, and it was not long after that he met um, some people at the gym and you know made connections there and was starting to want to be involved instead of just going for me. I feel like if it wasn't for the church family that we have now, I don't know that we would have made it because we wouldn't have had the support. And at that time, what we needed was support. For someone to say, it's okay to fight for this and it's okay that you're hurt and it's okay that you know he's done these things, um, but you can move forward from here. love those kind of stories. I love stories of redemption. And I hope that you're sensing that that's really what the story 
of the prodigal son is all about. Before I jump in, um, I've been asked to announce that it is official that next April 19th, 2021, I will be leading another group back to Israel. We only have room for 52. And I let you know that registration for that is now open. And I'll just give you a heads up. I think 15 people have already registered. So it will fill up fast. If you're interested in going, I recommend that you get that information. Uh, we are going to have an information meeting March 22nd in Rigo's restaurant here in Cary. Uh, but I can't, I can't even promise you by that date there will still be opening. So if you're interested in going, get the information. The flyers are ready. You can check it out. And uh, it is a life-changing Trip. So this is the weekend that we are wrapping up our series we're calling Lost and Found. It's based on the most familiar story that Jesus ever told, the story of the prodigal son. But you may be in church this weekend, and you're new to church. Maybe you've never heard the story. So let me just give you the Reader's Digest version, okay? It's about a father who had two sons, and the young son came forward one day and said, I want my inheritance. I want my share of the estate. I've got dreams I want to chase. I want to chase them on my own. And the father gave him the money. And it's interesting in the parable, it says not many days later, meaning he had thought about this for a while. He went off to some wild exotic land and there he just partied his brains out. I mean, it was wine, it was women, it was song. Money started getting a little cheap, so he quit singing. It was just the wine and the women. But eventually one day he woke up and he was broke. And also on top of that, there was a famine in the land. He couldn't find food to eat. And he finds himself working for a pig farmer, slopping the hogs. And I think somewhere sitting in that pig pen, waiting for the hogs to finish eating to see if there's something left over for him to enjoy, to get something in his stomach, I'm sure he had the same thought that most of us, unless you're a really, really goody-goody person, right, most of us have had in that life is, how in the world did I ever end up in this situation? You ever had that moment? How in the world did I ever end up here? Now, thankfully, according to Luke chapter 15, verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. Let me just say this, by the way. Uh, some life lessons are never learned without a hungry stomach. Just know, some life lessons are never learned without the news of a disease or maybe without experiencing the pig pen. But that's where this young man finds himself. He, yeah, he's learned his lessons, right? He's learned his lesson. But man, he has paid the price. He has learned the lesson the hard way. But it says in verse 20, he got up and went to the father. And I don't think it ever crossed his mind that his father may not welcome him back home. I don't think that ever crossed his mind. In fact, I came across this quote it says, when sheep are lost, you go hunt for them. When coins are lost, you sweep until you find them. But when a son is lost, you wait until he comes home. And that's exactly what this father has had to do. He has just patiently waited. And then maybe one day he walked to the end of the driveway thinking uh, it wasn't yesterday and it wasn't last month, but maybe it could be today. And he looks down the road and he sees the silhouette of his son and he realizes he's home. Now understand at this point, he doesn't know what his son has been up to. He doesn't know this wild partying his head, brains out living lifestyle he's been up to. He doesn't know that he's run through all of his inheritance. See, he doesn't know that he's been in a pig pen and he's finally come to his senses. See, he's never read Luke 15. He doesn't know how the story ends, right? So it says in verse 20, when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the Greek word kiss there, the verb tense, means he kept on kissing him. He was kissing him over and over and over again. In other words, he was smothering this boy with kisses, and it was the father's way of saying, I have missed you. Welcome home. But let me just say something. Uh, 
those of us who are Christians, we're the ones, like, for example, when the prodigal comes home, we're the ones who have set up systems of probation. We're the ones when the prodigal comes home, we're like, let's keep an eye on him. Let's watch him for a while. Let's make sure he's really changed. Let's make sure he's not going to screw up again, and then we'll welcome him home. I got an interesting letter this week, maybe one of the most interesting letters I've ever gotten in my life, because the return address on it was Lord Jesus Christ. How about that? Jesus wrote me a, he wrote me a letter. But anyway, Jesus wrote me a letter. So I get this letter, and this guy informed me that he is only sending this letter to 10 of the most influential pastors in America, which made me think, well, why am I getting it? But anyway, I got this letter, and this is what the letter said. God told me to tell you not to have Kanye speak at your church. <laughs> and if you do, your church attendance will drop by 30%. Love, Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> we live in a crazy world, people. But, but, do you, but do you know why someone would even write a letter like that? Because they're not sure the prodigal's really home. They're not sure Kanye's really had a life-changing redemption experience. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. Only God knows, right? God and Kanye know, right? But see, it's that mentality. See, that's our style. That's just how we operate. But I want you to know that's not God's style. All it takes when we're prodigal is to say, Father, forgive me. And I'm telling you, God is all over us. He takes us back instantly. So while this father is all over his son, it says in Luke 15, verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's, he's working through the speech that he's prepared, and he can't even finish it. His father's like, hey, hold that thought for a second, right? And he sees a servant, and it says in verse 22, the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now understand, these gifts are significant because these are the three gifts, that the, the same three gifts that the father gives each one of us as his children. Each one of us. In other words, the moment that we get saved, the moment that we respond to the gospel and realize that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins so we could be restored and reconciled back into a relationship with God, he gives us a robe, he gives us a ring, and he gives us sandals. And as we wrap up the series, this is the part of sto the story I want to focus in on this weekend. I want to talk about what these gifts represent for each one of us now in the world we live in. So let's look at the first one. We'll unpack it. Notice the father gave the son a robe. Now, what does that mean to us? He gave the son a robe. Well, I can look at you and tell that, you know, most of us, we have developed the habit, thank God, of getting dressed physically, right, before we leave home to go out in public, right? So let me ask you a question. Do you get up every day and get dressed spiritually before you leave home? In other words, have you ever left the house spiritually naked because you didn't put your robe on. And I say that because in the story, the father gives the son a robe, but guess what? It's the son's decision. It's up to the son to decide, do I want to put this robe on? And in the same way, God has given us a robe to put on every day. What kind of robe has he given us? Listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 61, verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord, for my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me 
with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. So this verse tells us the kind of robe that the Father has given us. At the moment of salvation, he gives us a robe of righteousness. And there are a couple of Old Testament passages I want you to see. One is in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3. Don't even look for it because you'll never find it. Okay, so we'll put the verse up on the screen. But it says this, now Joshua was clothed with filthy clothes. Now you may be reading that one day, and he was clothed with filthy clothes. You're thinking, Joshua needs to find a laundromat, right? He's clothed with filthy clothes, but this is the very same Hebrew word that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And again, we saw last week that these filthy rags, that's a reference before God our attempt to be righteous, to put ourselves into a right standing with God. In other words, we think that by our own good deeds, our own good behavior, our own good works, the fact that we don't kick the neighbor's dog, we pay our taxes on time, we help the little old ladies across the street, somehow by doing all of these good things, this is going to put us in a right standing before God. But what we've learned in this series is that only accepting what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, shedding his blood, paying for our sins so that we can be restored back into a relationship with God, only that and the acceptance of that gift, the acceptance of salvation, only that can put us in a right standing before God. Only that positionally can make us righteous. But let's go back to what it says, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. So what do the filthy clothes represent? They represent sin. And I will put fine garments on you. And it's interesting, this Hebrew word uh, that, that's translated garments could also be translated and is also translated in other places in the Old Testament robes. I will put fine robes on you. Understand, this is a reference to the fact that when we accept the gift of salvation, when we are saved, God removes our sin from us. He removes our filthy clothes, and he covers us with a robe of righteousness. Paul talked about this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, when I was a child and I got saved, God took my sin and he put my sin in Jesus' account. And he took Jesus' righteousness and he put it in my account. See, that's the transaction that took place at the moment of my salvation. That's the transaction that took place at the moment of your salvation. Jesus, God took your sin and put it in Jesus' account. He took Jesus' righteousness and put it in your account. He put it in your life. And so understand, he removed our filthy garments. He removed our sin from us, but he doesn't leave us naked. Thank God, right? He gives us a robe to wear. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will die. And what did they do? Idiots. They ate. They did exactly what God told them not to do. And what happened immediately? They realized they were naked. They were ashamed. They tried to cover themselves up. Remember, they, they sewed fig leaves together to try to cover up their shame. They hid from God. And God came looking for them and said, why are you where you are? Why are you hiding, me and Ad, uh, hiding from me? And Adam says, well, yeah, we disobeyed you. And we were naked. And we were ashamed. And so what did God do? You remember? God said, well, those fig leaves aren't doing any good for you. So he killed an animal. Remember that blood had to be shed. And he took the skin of those animals and he covered up their, not only their sin, but he covered up their shame. 
I was working on this message on Monday. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Day. The TV was on, and I was listening to that speech, I Have a Dream, for the umpteenth time. And it hit me as I was listening to that dream, that speech about that dream, what Martin Luther's dream was this. It was a dream of redemption. It was a dream of reconciliation. It was a dream of restoration, right? And as we sit here this weekend, all of us have benefited from the fact that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream that's becoming a reality. And I say becoming because we're not there yet. We've got a long way to go. But we're moving in the right direction. And it made me think as I was right at this point at looking over my notes and making some notes, I thought, I wonder when God sat in the garden and he had slain that animal and he had skinned that animal and he was sewing together these, these clothes, these garments to give Adam and Eve to cover up their nakedness and their shame. I wonder if God thought, I have a dream. I have a dream. And it's also about redemption. And it's also about reconciliation. And it's also about restoration because one day through my son's death on the cross he's not only going to remove mankind's sin he's going to cover our shame and that's what isaiah was talking about in isaiah 61 10 he arrayed he clothed me with a robe of righteousness see he took care of my sin he took care of my shame so let me ask you the question are you wearing the robe the father gave you but not only that are you putting it on every day what would, what would it look like to put it on? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, because he uses this same analogy. He says, he says, we have to take off the old, and we have to put on the new. And this is what he says in Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and uh, dearly loved, clothe yourself. In other words, as you put on the new, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues... Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. See, that's what your life looks like as a Christian, as you're changing, as you're being transformed, when you're putting on the robe. So you have a robe. The question is, are you putting it on? Are you putting it on? Notice also the father gave the son a ring. And if you've ever read the, the story of Joseph, it's a great story. And in this story, it helps us understand the significance of getting a ring. You may remember that Joseph was one of 12 boys, right? Daddy loved him the most. He was daddy's favorite. And, of course, the loving brothers hated him for that. They were jealous of him. They rejected him. They resented him. So one day, the loving brothers are working out in the field, and Joseph, with his coat of many colors, goes out to visit them. Remember that? My guess is Joseph was not the kind of guy who got his nails dirty, right? He was home with Daddy, right? But he goes out, and they're like, we've kind of had it with you, you little snot-nosed favorite. And so they fake his death. They tell Daddy that Joseph's been killed by a wild animal. They seldom sell Joseph into slavery. Through a series of miraculous events, God promotes Joseph from being in a prison to being the prime minister of Egypt, which means he is second in command to the most powerful man in the most powerful nation on the earth at that time, the nation of Egypt, prime minister. But I want you to notice something. Genesis chapter 41, verse 42, it says, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from, uh, from his finger put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole 
land of Egypt. So what does this ring represent in this story? It represents authority. And when Pharaoh gave Joseph his ring, it means Pharaoh gave Joseph his authority. But understand, the only way that Joseph had authority was because the Pharaoh gave Joseph his authority. And in the same way as Christians, we don't have authority on our own. We only have authority because God made the decision to give us his authority. And in Matthew chapter 21, we learn something about this authority that's been given to us, and it's very, very important. In fact, it's actually the key to having and being able to use this authority. Let me read a story for you, Matthew 21, verse 30, 23. And, and listen, don't worry if you're new to church, new to the Bible, you're not going to have a clue what this is talking about, but most of these people sitting around you that have been in church their whole life, they don't have a clue what it's talking about either. Okay, but let me just read it to you. Matthew 21, verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. Who gave you this authority? So Jesus has been going around healing people, raising people from the dead, feeding people, multiplying food, walking on water. He's been doing all these things. They're like, where do you get the authority? to do these things Jesus replied and he this is the way he, he these are just the games that Jesus played with the religious leaders I will ask you one question if you answer me I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things he says here's one for you John's baptism where did it come from was it from heaven or of human origin well, they discussed it among themselves and said well listen here guys if we say from heaven he's gonna ask us why didn't you believe him but if we say he's of human origin, well, we're afraid of the, uh, we're afraid of the people, for they, they all thought that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus. I mean, they're between a rock and a hard place. They're like, listen, we're just going to take the high road. We don't have a clue. We don't have a clue. Then he said, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What do you think? And then he tells them a story, okay? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? In other words, which of the two obeyed the father? The first they answered. And then Jesus, just to confuse them, says to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, that's a whole different parable for a whole nother weekend. Right? But let's go back to the original question. What did they ask Jesus? Where does your authority come from? And then Jesus tells them this parable about the two sons, one who did obey, one who didn't obey. So what was he saying? He was saying that his authority comes by obeying the Father. In other words, the authority of the Father is given to the person who's obedient. So when I ask you, are you wearing your ring, what I'm really asking you as a Christian is, are you living under God's authority? Let me say it another way. Are you living your life in obedience to God? Let me say it another way. When you read the Bible and it says to do something, do you do it? And when it says stop doing something, do you stop doing it? Because if that doesn't describe your life, I can tell you this right now, your authority that's been given to you is in jeopardy. Now here's the $64,000 question. Why do we need authority? 
Why is that so important to us? Well, we need authority because you need to understand there is a battle going on every day around us. And it's a spiritual battle. And it's a battle that's taking place between Satan and those fallen angels that the Bible refers to as demons. And I know even a lot of Christians, they don't believe that stuff. But let me just give you some facts. Did you know the word demon appears in the Bible 82 times? Did you know that it appears 61 times in just the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Did you know that there were eight writers of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Paul, Peter, Jude, and the writer of Hebrews? Every one of them, except the writer of Hebrews, talks about demons and or Satan, and they talk about it in great detail. My point is simply this, Satan is real. Demons really do exist. And if you don't believe that, you've got to ignore a whole lot of the Bible. In fact, you've got to ignore a whole lot of the ministry of Jesus. So in spite of what you've been told, in spite of what you think, in spite of what you've read, this is, this is real, real stuff. And if you would like to know more about it, a, a few months ago, a couple of years ago, I did an in-depth series, a six or seven week series, just on spiritual warfare entitled Battle Tested. Go to our website, go to the app. You should listen to these messages. This is real stuff. Satan exists. Demons exist. They want to destroy you. They want to destroy your marriage. They want to destroy your kids. They want to destroy your family. They want to destroy your home. They want to destroy you. Now, you don't need to freak out. See, we don't need to be afraid because God has given us what? He's given us a ring. He's given us his authority. Listen to some verses. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then, therefore, to God. In other words, be obedient. Be obedient to what he tells you to do. Resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. Here's another one, 1 John 4, 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. This is in the context of talking about Satan and his demons. You've overcome them because the one who is in you, Jesus, is greater than the one who is in the world, Satan. 1 Peter 5, 9. Resist him, again, talking about Satan. How? Standing firm in the faith. Question, how do you stand firm in the faith? Well, one is you get into God's word. But not only do you read God's word and learn God's word, you have to figure out, how does this apply to my life? You have to bring your life into alignment with God's word. You have to live in obedience. Another would be spend time in prayer. I cannot tell you how often I'm praying, not for God to do something miraculous in my life, not even for God to heal someone, although that happens from time to time. Probably more often than not is, God, build a hedge of protection around me and my family around my wife, around my kids, around this church. Keep the evil one away from us. You got to do that. Get into a small group. You got to connect with other people in community. Let me tell you why. Go back to 1 Peter 5, 9. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. See, one of Satan's favorite tools is he loves for you to think that nobody else is going through what you are going through. And that's why it's so important that we connect with other Christians. We have community with other Christians. We can share our struggles, share our temptations, share our victories. We can be supported and support other people. We can be reminded that we're not alone because I will tell you this, the ones that are most vulnerable, the sheep that are most vulnerable to Satan's attack are the ones that are away from the flock. And they're just kind of wandering around out there doing life all by themselves. And if that describes you, I'd find a small group and get right in the middle of it. I mean, I'd get right in the middle of the flight, right? But understand, you have been given the authority to resist Satan's power, but you have to wear the ring of authority that the Father gave you. You have to decide, I am going to live my life 
in obedience. But let me just say this. If you choose not to live in obedience, I mean, if you discover the Bible teaches that God created sex just for a husband and wife in the context of marriage, you're like, well, I'm going to ignore that. Hmm? Or you see that the Bible says you're supposed to tithe, you're like, I'm going to ignore that. Or you're supposed to serve others, like, I'm going to ignore that. I'm telling you, if you do that, you are vulnerable. You remember Star Wars? When, remember, by the way, Star Wars when it only had three movies? Now it's got like 180 because you people will keep go watching them. By the way, i got to say something to you grown men who go to Star Wars movies. I was watching the news the other night after the last Star Wars movie came out. They, they caught a guy in the parking lot. He had to be 45, 50 years old. And they said, sir, what did you think of the movie? Well, I thought it was incredible because it, it really wrapped up a lot of things and it closed some holes that I was struggling with. I'm like, you idiot, it's a movie. It's a movie. It's not real. They're, there's not re- you know, they're not really out there. But anyway, that's a whole other story, a whole other series for another time. All you idiots who like Star Wars. But anyway, what I remember about Star Wars when there was only three of them was that they had deflector shields. Remember that? And when the deflector shield was up, everything was good. But when the deflector shield was down, bad stuff happens, right? This may be explaining why you're having some of the problems that you're having in life. Some of the problems you're having in your marriage. Some of the problems you're having with your kids. You're having in your home. Maybe some of the problems you're having in your job. See, Satan's having a field day. You know why? Because of your lack of obedience to the principles of God, your deflector shield is down. So understand, the authority is available, but it requires obedience to be activated. Now here's the third thing. The father gave the son shoes. What do shoes represent? I came across kind of an interesting verse. You ever read a verse, you've read it a million times, like I have no idea what that means, so you finally decide you're going to figure out what the verse means. This is in the Old Testament, and it kind of lets us know what shoes or sandals meant to the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Ruth and Boaz, probably the best love story in the Bible. You should read it, four chapters in the book of Ruth. You can, you can, you can read it in 20 minutes. But Ruth is a young lady, and her husband dies, so she's left as a widow. But in, in Ruth's day, God has established for the Hebrew people a law that was known as the kinsman redeemer. In other words, if a widow died without an heir... There was this idea of this kinsman redeemer, and the kinsman redeemer was a close living relative, and that close living relative had a responsibility to the widow who died without an heir. First of all, they were to help manage the estate was, that was left, so it was kind of like, you know, maybe like a financial advisor. But the other thing was, if you weren't married and you could marry this widow, it was your responsibility to marry this widow. So in the story of Ruth, her and Boaz meet, they fall in love with each other. You know, and she's head over heels in Boaz. I mean, he probably looks like Clark Gable, just incredibly handsome, right? And, uh, but he says, hey, Ruth, we got a problem. I'm not the closest kinsman redeemer. I'm like number two in line. And she's like, there's somebody else? And he's, yeah. And her heart must have sunk. She probably thought it looked like Quasimodo, right, right, right. But, you know, so he said, but it doesn't matter. I got to go find So he goes and hunts down the first in line kinsman redeemer. And he says, do you have any plans on marrying Ruth? He says, no, I, I can't take that on right now. And so Boaz says, do you care if I marry? And he says, no, you marry here. You go for it. You have my blessing. But here's the verse. Here's the verse. Ruth 4, 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. Notice this. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. How cool would that be? We could get rid of all attorneys. 
I don't know what we would do with the jokes, you know? No courts, no contracts. Hey, hey, are we okay with this? Have a sandal, right? So this guy, he gives his sandal to Boaz. It was a legal transaction, but this is what the guy was saying. Even though I have the right to marry Ruth, I'm giving up my right. Now, it's interesting. Once you know that that's what that represents, taking off your sandal, taking off your shoes, you start to see illustrations of this all through the Old Testament. For example, think about it. Why did God tell Moses at the burning bush? What? Take off your shoes. And we always thought I was an act of worship or something. You know what he was saying to Moses? Hang on, Moses. I'm going to make you the deliverer of my people. But for that to happen, Moses, you got to give up your rights. you got to let me lead. Here, here's another one. Joshua, right before they go walk round and round and round and round and round the city of Jericho. You remember the angel came to Joshua right before the battle? Do you remember what he told Joshua? Take off your shoes. I used to read that and think, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. They're getting ready to walk, walk round and round and round the city. They need their shoes. Why are they saying take off your shoes? The, the angel was saying, Joshua, you've got to give up your rights. You're not going to be the commander in this battle. If you want to win the battle... You got to recognize I'm in charge. You got to give up your rights. So understand, taking off your shoes means you're giving up your rights. Okay, here's the question What does it mean to put shoes on? Well, first of all, shoes protect us. Now, if you ask Laura, she will not give you that answer. She will tell you that shoes, the value of shoes, is it, 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 they complete the outfit. That's why you have shoes, they complete the outfit. In some ways, she's right. Shoes do complete the outfit. Think about it. This is what Paul said when he was describing the armor of God in Ephesians 6.13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the days of evil come, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the truth, uh, truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And look what completes the outfit. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Shoes do complete the outfit. They protect us. Here's another one. Shoes give us confidence. You ever given your kids when they're little a new pair of tennis shoes? Like Nike or Adidas or PF Flyers? What do they do? They act like idiots, right? They start running around. Look how fast I can run in my new shoes. They ever done that? Look how I can jump in my new shoes, right? You know why? It gives them confidence. And I'm telling you, in the very same way our spiritual shoes give us confidence, they remind us that we're a child of the Father. In fact, the third one is this. Shoes give us freedom. For example, in the Old Testament, the very first thing a nation did, the very first thing they did when they conquered a nation of people was they made them slaves by doing what? By removing their shoes. It was a sign. Slaves didn't have shoes. And that's why when this prodigal son came home and said, remember they said, Dad, listen, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant. What did the father say? No way. Get that boy. Give him some shoes. See? Shoes give us freedom. Did you know there was an old spiritual that the, the slaves in the South used to sing? I actually was sitting around the house last night, and Laura said, what is that you're playing? And I said, I found this song that the slaves used to sing years ago. And she, I said, I was going to play it in a church, but I, I, I didn't want to play it. It was a dumb song. But it had a great line in it. You know what it was? All God's children have shoes. So as the slaves are thinking, I may not have shoes on this earth, but I tell you what, I'm one of God's children, and all God's children have shoes. So understand, as children of God, we've been given a robe of righteousness. Are you wearing it? 
We've been given a ring of authority. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Are you being obedient? And we've been given shoes. We sang about it this weekend. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm no longer a slave to my past. I'm no longer a slave to the unknown. I am a child of God. You know, it's interesting when you think about it. When Jesus died for our sins, it was kind of his way of saying, hey, welcome home. Welcome home. This is where you belong. This is why, this is why I did what I did. It was so that you could be reconciled back into a relationship with the Father. And I thought about this. You know, his robe was taken off so that we now get to wear the robe of righteousness. He who knew no sin for us became sin so that in him we could experience the righteousness of God. And then on top of that, he had a ring of thorns placed on his head. And now, because of the ring he gives us, we get to reign in authority with him. Shoes were removed, spikes driven into his feet so that we get to walk in freedom with him. Do you know why he did it? So we wouldn't have to. See, that's called grace. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Let's bow together. God said, I have a dream. Even though man sinned, I have a dream. I have a dream of a relationship. I have a dream of redemption. I have a dream of restoration and reconciliation. And Jesus died on the cross to make that dream a reality. You know what would be a shame? It would be a shame to wrap up a series like this and some of you still, still be lost. You remember we started out by saying this son was a member of the family. He, he represents a Christian who left home. And, and maybe that's you. Maybe you've been living outside the circle of obedience, outside of God's plan and will for your life. And maybe that you're still there. And, and, and what a shame it would, would be to end this series without you just coming home to the Father. Or maybe your heart's left home. Man, maybe there was a time when you were like a red hot coal just on fire for God. And then it's like you got moved away from the fire and then you turned white and then gray and then finally black. And you, your heart's just become cold. And maybe you just need to pray like David. God, just restore to me the joy of my salvation. Maybe it's just a time to come home. Or maybe you're here and you've never... You've never been saved. You've never accepted the gift of salvation. You say, well, Mike, how do I do that? I think the Apostle Paul summed it up best in Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's pretty simple. You declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart. I really do believe that after three days Jesus rose from the dead. Paul said you will be saved. And God says, welcome home. You know what? Maybe this is one of those weekends that all of our campuses, while everyone else leaves, if you feel comfortable, you want to just stay where you are. You certainly can just pray and talk to God on your own. 
We have small group leaders, staff, other mature Christians who would love nothing more than just to hang around and maybe sit and talk with you. Maybe there's just something heavy on your heart you want to pray about. But you want to wrap up this series walking out feeling like you're back home. Home where you belong. Father, thank you for your promise to us that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. While we weren't even interested in being home, you made the way home possible through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for all of us that we will do the things we need to do and make the decisions we need to make to experience your incredible grace that changes our lives. In your name we pray. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things that God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download the Hope app to find out ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. 